This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Well, if you have your Bible, let's prepare for the preaching of God's Word in Romans chapter 8. We just have a few weeks left, and today is Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. I'm going to read them. I encourage you to follow along in your own Bible on, or on your device. Verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray together. God, we pray that your blessing would rest on this time. These are such good verses, and they give us so much reason for optimism, hope, and certainty. May your Holy Spirit press certainty into the hearts of these precious men and women and children. May our church grow in faithfulness. May we grow in doctrinal purity. And may we grow in the hope that is ours in Christ, emboldened to face the future and to ask how we might be conformed in the image of Christ through all circumstances in our lives for your glory and for our good. We are for you. We are your people. Thank you. Speak to our hearts and our minds now. We pray in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Romans 8, 29 and 30. Last week I said that Romans 8, 28 is the best verse in the Bible. I really believe it is. We're calling this series overall in Romans 8 the best chapter in the Bible. And if Romans 8 is the best chapter and Romans 8, 28 is the best verse, I believe these verses tie for the top or for the second spot in all the Bible. There's Romans 8, 28, and then there's Romans 8, 29 and 30, and they tie because you can't take one without the other. They're a set, they're a pair. You have to do Romans 8, 29, and 30 together. They're also tied because they form a chain. For many years, Christians have called these verses the golden chain of salvation. These are the miraculous and gracious works of God that he links together to save his people. It says he foreknows predestines, calls or enlivens, justifies, and glorifies. Now, God actually does more than that along the way. The New Testament reveals more things that God does throughout it, but they're all consistent with the chain that's present here. Predestination, or rather foreknowledge, predestination, effectual calling, justification, and glorification. Those are theological words that might sound heavy and big, but I promise you they are not. They are some of the lightest words, some of the best words, some of the most important words to know in all the world. Now, more plainly than the theology, these verses tell anybody who wonders what God is doing in their lives, or more specifically even, I suppose, if God is actually doing anything at all in their lives. And these verses tell you 
that if you love him, if you are in him, if you have repented of sin and your faith is in Christ, God is and promising not only that he is at work in your lives, but he is in the process right now, in these very moments, of doing something so significant in your life that when he's done with it, when he completes his current work, you really can't even be called the same person that you were before he began it. When God's done with the work that he's doing in you, with you, you are something else. You are something new. You're a new creation. When Paul, who wrote Romans, wrote another letter in the Bible, wrote to the Christians in Corinth, he said, if anybody is in Christ, he is a new creation. Now, he, he meant that to get our attention, and he wrote it to get our attention, but that doesn't mean that it's hyperbole. Paul didn't mean that as a statement of fact, if you are in Christ, you are new. That's not flowery language, folks. That's a statement of fact. And so if you are here this morning wondering if God is doing anything, if you feel stuck, if you're confused, if you're scared at what God is doing, then these verses are for you. God's never stuck and he's never confused. And in him, neither at the end of the day are you. You're always being, God, you're always being given opportunities and God is always working to conform you into the image of of his son. That's the work that God is always doing in every single Christian. So last week we saw in Romans 8:28 that the awesome power of God is at work in all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The theological word for all of that that sums up that one verse is providence. God's plan, enabled by God's power, is providence. And according to the providence of God, even evil things can be used to bring about good. Folks, that's the God that you can know. You can know this God, the God of providence, who's so powerful that even evil he brings about for good. He has such might that he can turn things meant to work against him and against his people, and he can still bring about his good purposes. He can, it's like he takes evil things and he puts them in his hands and he bends them, not just to his will, not just to his liking but in fulfillment of his plans. And I just wonder, have you ever thought of God like this? He doesn't just bring evil, he doesn't just bring good from evil. He makes evil serve good. That's the power of God. Evil does the bidding of good in the providence of God. 
and he sits above it all in light that is greater than the sun, in heat that is more intense, burns hotter than the center of a kiln. Romans 8.28 then tells us what God does. He works all things for good. And verses 29 and 30 tell us a little bit of how he does it. So Romans 8.28 says what he does. 29 and 30 tell us how he does it. Verse 28, the, the vision is so big, and we would even say so otherworldly, that it does leave us asking a few questions, doesn't it? What is the good, for instance, if Romans 8.28 says that he's working all things for good, what is the good that he's doing? What does it mean for him to call someone if we're called according to his purpose? The biggest question of all, what are his purposes? God's doing all these things according to his purposes. What are his purposes? Now, the answer to that last question surprises a lot of people. If I ask, what are the purposes of God? You might say to glorify himself. You might say to redeem the world from sin. You might say to defeat the devil. And all of those are true. God is doing all of those things. God glorifies himself because he's the greatest thing in all the universe. And it makes sense to give glory to the greatest thing. So that's what God's doing. And God is in the process of redeeming the world. And even though there are still a few things about that redemption to work out, God has already defeated the devil. But if I ask you to study these verses with me, and based on Romans 8 as a chapter, but especially coming out of 8.28 and into verses 29 and 30, if I ask you, what are God's purposes what would you say? I want to show you what I'd say. Look at, look at, put your eyes in the Bible again at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What's his purpose? Let's walk it backwards. Let's walk it, let's walk it backwards. His purpose is for those who are called. For those who are called, he works all things together for their good. The one he calls and is working for their good are the ones who love him. So here is sort of the, the show-stopping, mic-drop moment of Romans chapter 8. The best chapter in all the Bible. This is God's mic-drop moment. We've worked this backwards. If you love God, you are his purpose. If you love God, you are his purpose. Not you, if you're just one of the good Christians. Not you, if you haven't screwed up too badly. Not you, if you can't seem to get it all together. If you love God... His purpose is you. And that purpose works with his other purposes. He receives glory when he calls and justifies and glorifies people. He defeats the devil when he dies 
in your place, breaking the hold and the claim that the devil had on your life because of sin. Folks, you are God's good purpose. I was reading Ray Ortland, one of my favorite authors this past week, and he reminded me who these verses were written to. Romans, it's called Romans because it was written as a letter to Christians in Rome, probably around 57 AD. Now in 57 AD, it was already building. Christians were already being targeted by the Roman Empire, seen as a subversive element that was undercutting the authority and the power and the worship of the Roman Empire. But by 64 AD, the Roman Emperor Nero will have declared that Christians are the sworn enemy of the empire. And although he has little evidence for it, he blames them for a great fire. We know all about those here in Chicago, a great fire that destroyed two-thirds of Rome in 64 AD. And he will use that fire and the blame he puts on them as an excuse to round up Christians, to torture them, and to feed them to lions in front of audiences for entertainment. I don't know what you're up against or wonder what purpose God is working in your life, but this was written to people who were going to be fed to lions. And the message is, whatever happens to you, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Even when you're fed to lions you will not be separated from God. He has known about you from eternity past. He planned your life. At some point, he called you. If you're not a Christian and you're hearing these words, he's calling out to you right now. Maybe even today is that time of his call in your life. And then he died for you and he's going to keep you as his forever. Whatever happened to you, Whatever is happening to you, whatever does happen to you in the future, God has not allowed it because he's planning to give you up or or leave you on your own. Paul wrote this to the Romans to say that things are getting bad. But that doesn't mean God is any less carrying out his purposes. He's using all things for his purposes just like he always intended to and just like he always does and just like he always will. And to show us this, there's, there's these five words that form this chain. Here's what I like about all five. Each of them happens outside of this world and none of them depend on you. They all happen outside of the world and not a single one depends on you. They start before you were born And they go on forever. And none of them is dependent on anything in this world either. They originate and really for all meaningful sense and purposes, they come from and they take place outside of this world. Folks, everybody else is looking to the things of this world for hope and for meaning and for purpose and for salvation. They're looking for things this world has to offer to save them and to spare them. But if there is going to be any sure hope of being saved out 
of this world, it can't come from the world. That doesn't make any sense to look amongst the world to be saved out of the world. That's why Christians are people uniquely looking for their hope, not from the world, but as James chapter 3 says, above the world. We're looking for hope from above. So I want to work through these five words. These five words that seem like big theological words. But they're the best words to know in all the world. The first word is foreknew. For those whom he foreknew. Foreknowledge and foresight are not the same thing. Foreknowledge is more than just knowing, than just looking ahead and seeing. People can foresee things all the time. You can foresee a problem with somebody whose life seems to be a little out of control. You can foresee a financial crisis when your debt is mounting. Foreknowledge is not just being able to look forward and see things that have a pattern developing for knowledge is being able to look into the future and decide what will happen. Here it says that foreknowledge has to do with predestination for those he foreknew he predestined throughout the scriptures. When God says he knows someone, it means much more than just he knows about them. Like a few life facts, a few personals. When the Bible talks about God knowing somebody, it usually means that he cares for them and that he has a, a special concern for them. It starts in the Old Testament, but the Hebrew word for know means much more than just to have information. It brings with it a personal affection. And we can see that most poignantly in the way that God talked about choosing and forming a covenant with a specific group of people. He loved them. In the New Testament, Paul adds the prefixed for to God's knowledge, to God's knowing. So when you put that together, what you have is God knowing us or caring for us, knowing or caring or loving for us. And then you'd before that, he before he cares but before what before two things he knows before he knows us he cares for us he loves us before two things the first is simple the second blows your mind first god knows about you he does care about you he loves you before you know or love or care about him first john 4:19 we love because he first loved us that's the simple one. The second one, though, is what it says in Ephesians 1.4. That before the foundation of the world, God loved you and cared about you. And he decided that you would come to know him because of his love for you. Theologian John Murray says that in, in the practical sense, knowing and loving are used synonymously in the Bible. So when it says that those whom God foreknew, it is the equivalent of those of its saying, 
those whom God, and I love it because he makes up a word here, those whom God foreloved. When it says that God foreknew you, what it means is that God foreloved you. The point is that God chose you and loved you before you loved and chose him. That means his love for you is not dependent on you at all. It's not dependent on how you feel about him. It's not even dependent on a progression of time where he comes to love you because you do things that might be lovely to him. God loves you outside of and above and before time. He doesn't have to come to love you. He just does. And this is why it sort of blows your mind because we can barely conceive of this type of love because we can't do it. Now, I love my wife, but there was a time that I didn't love her because I didn't know her. I had to come to know her. We had to meet. We had to get to know one another, and then we had to fall in love. God doesn't need that. He loves us with the full measure of all his love from the moment that he, not you, decides to And that point was sometime before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4. The reason that's such good news is that because God has chosen to love you, what you do or don't do or won't change, that won't change his love for you. What you do or do not do will not change God's love for you. Not only did he foreknow he would love you, But he foreknew that while also foreknowing, foreloving you the rest of your life, he knew the things that you were going to do. He knew the person that you would be. The things that you fear might make you unworthy or unlovable. Folks, he knows them. He knows those things. Just like he did when he foreknew you, he already knew those things. Yet he chose you for love. It's a great new word. And it brings us to our second word, predestined. There's the prefix again, pre. He predestined. To predestine means to predestination. It means that in advance, God has decided where people will go. And I'm aware that the doctrine of predestination is difficult to think through for some people. When we approach a difficult doctrine that we read in our Bible, the first thing we have to remember is that it's in our Bible. I didn't do a lot of fancy word manipulation. The word predestination is not a tricky Greek word. It's plain. In other words, folks, as creatures, not the creator, it's not up to us to decide what should be in the mind of God and what should be revealed as truth in his word. We don't get a vote in that. Predestination is in your Bible, and it's plainly sitting there for you right now. And the second aspect of things to consider is that for God to predetermine some people to be saved to heaven 
does not in any way mean that people are not agents of free will. God invites everybody and reveals himself to everybody and opens heaven wide to everyone who will believe in Jesus, repent of their sin. And he wants every person's life to reflect the status of a new creation in Christ. He reveals himself to everybody. He wants everybody to be saved. And so the biblical picture, we have to get this in our minds when we're talking about predestination. The biblical picture is not many people clamoring for heaven, clamoring to get into God's kingdom and God only choosing the beautiful people. The biblical picture is our entire race, the entire human race, running as hard as we can from God. And in love, he graciously turns people from their foolish sprint away from him, and he shows people true joy and peace. We also see here that predestination does not mean that we have no responsibilities. Our predestination is not a pre-boarding pass to heaven. It is an encouragement to do and to be what God is leading us toward, which is transformed and renewed, which is to be transformed and renewed. In other words, predestination is not a wall that a person cannot jump high enough to climb over. It's a trampoline promising that when we jump, the springs will engage and propel us upward. In this case, upward means into the conformity of the image of Christ. If you are asking, what is God doing in my life? That's it. This is what God is doing in your life. He has done these things so that you will be propelled upward into conformity to the image of his son. I find that that sometimes people get tripped up when they ask, why did this thing or that thing happen to me? Friends, that's really the wrong question to ask. If you reframe the question to be, how is this meant to conform me to the image of God's son? Then you will begin to see both the circumstances and the outcomes of your life much differently. If you ask, how does God mean to transform me into the image of his son through whatever's happening to me, you will see things more from God's perspective. So he predestines. Now this third word brings us to our lifetimes. To those he predestined, he also called. John Stott says this is the present application of God's eternal foreknowing and predestining. God calls people through the gospel through the good news. The calling is to respond to the, pre, the, the free offer of salvation by turning to God in obedience and faith. People sometimes wonder, well, if God has predestined someone, isn't all a call, isn't the rest of this actually kind of superfluous? No, a- absolutely it's not. It's by calling people and through calling people that God's plan is carried out. This is the same reason that 
people ask why we should do evangelism. If God has predestined people for heaven, what's the point of spreading the gospel? Well, last year, some, some men in our church read J.I. Packer's classic book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, together. In that book, Packer says that it's precisely because God has predestined and promises to call people that we should do evangelism. He's saying that God has made a way for people to be saved. And God has promised that people will be saved. And the way he plans to save them is through the calling to himself of people through the gospel. So we preach the gospel not wondering if anybody at all is going to hear this or learn from it or respond to it. We preach the gospel with confidence and with expectation and in the sure hope that people around us are going to turn to God in obedience and faith because he has promised that some will. And his promise comes from foreknowledge and it's assured by his predestination. So we preach the gospel knowing that it will have an effect. Not wondering whether it's all in vain. In fact, it would be the other way around. If God had not foreknown and predestined, then we would wonder, well, is this going to do anything at all? But instead, we preach the gospel with full confidence and assurance. God's going to save. God will save. This is the means by which he does it. This is how he awakens people when the gospel is preached to them. And when he calls people, he justifies. That's our fourth word. For those whom he called, he also justified. Justification is the instantaneous act of God that forgives us of our sins because of the work of Jesus on the cross. And then in the mind of God, we appear righteous because the righteousness of Jesus is credited to us. In other words, it's the moment that we're declared not guilty. Now, there are so many things that I could say about justification. I could talk about the price that God had to pay to justify us through the death of his own son or talk about how offensive sin is and marvel that he would even want to justify anybody at all. Earlier in the book, chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says that we are justified by faith. But he doesn't say that here. And actually, that's what I want you to see about this chain. It's all God. The chain is all God. We don't do anything. All the links are the works of God. In Romans 5.1, where it says that we are justified by faith, Paul does not mean that God waits for our faith or that God is dependent on our faith. The verses on either side of that at the end of chapter 4 and 5.2 come together to say that God has done this and in his kindness, he has led us to faith. And in his kindness, he leads us to repentance. I love Ray Ortland's picture. He says that faith is like the empty hand that God puts justification into so we can grab hold of justification. Is that a great word picture? The empty hand that God puts justification into. It's all God. It's all God's work. One final word, glorification. Those whom God has foreknown, predestined, called, and justified, he will surely glorify. This moves from the present toward the very, fe- the very real future. 
Glorification is the reuniting of our souls with resurrected, renewed bodies in the new heaven and the new earth. It's what's going to happen. But look at how, how it's written here. Glorify is in the past tense. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. While this is yet to happen, Paul is so certain of it that he has written it as though it is already done. He can say that not because of our faith or our merit, but because of the one who does the glorifying. God has for all time planned and purposed to save a people for his own possession, a community for his glory, and because it is God who made the plan and it's God who's executing it, its fulfillment is more sure than anything in this world. So Paul can say that, God who, that, that those whom God loved in the past will so surely be with him that they have already even though it hasn't happened yet in the temporal sense, been glorified. Folks, it's done. If you're in Christ, your glorification has happened in the mind of God. So much so that Paul says it's basically past tense. It's done. This is such good news. These, these words are such good news. They're big words that communicate big doctrine. And it's all about God. This is all about God. But I don't want us to walk away, drive away without realizing or thinking, well, because it's all about God, there's nothing for me to do. So I just want to ask, where does this press us? Where, is the, where, 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 where are we in this? What does this do? What do we do for the, with this? Let me point out two things. First, I want to ask you if you're in awe of God. Earlier it says, for those who love God. I don't mean just, you know, they like God. Compared to other gods that people worship, he's a good one. I mean, are you on the floor sometimes in awe of God? One of my fears is that in trying to make a relationship, a personal relationship with God seem possible for people, we sometimes reduce his grandeur to fit in our ordinary minds. And while that sort of reduction may be well-intentioned to try to help people understand him, it often has the reverse effect on people. It makes people think that God isn't so special after all. Romans 8, 29 and 30 remind us that he is so worthy of worship that the only thing that really makes sense is to live with remarkable, noticeable awe of him. So worship him and marvel at him and wonder, how could he do such things for a sinner like you? That's part of the point. How could he do things for a sinner such as you? And I want you to consider, as you're preaching the gospel to people, what will grab hold of their minds and awaken their imaginations to the possibility of relationship with God is not for you to make him less than he is, but for you to glorify him exactly as much as he is. People are longing. Folks, people are longing to worship a big God, powerful, beyond this world. That's what they want. That's what their hearts cry out for. You don't win people by making less of God. You, buy, you win people by making more of him. 
And second place where this presses on us is in verse 29. Are you asking for and looking for God to conform you into the image of his son? I'm concerned that too much of the American dream has crept into our Christianity. The belief that if we set goals and work hard, we can have what we want and things will go well for us. You can have financial security. You can be adored by family and many friends. You'll stay healthy and grow old. Folks, we must remember that God's purpose is to conform us into the image of his son and for his glory. And we must remember the one whom we are being conformed into the image of died alone, penniless, and in his mid-30s. The American dream and being conformed into the image of the Son of God are not compatible realities. They are not compatible purposes and they are not goals that can be pursued together. You are either, and I mean either, being conformed into the image of God's Son or you are pursuing the things of this world. You cannot do both. And I'm concerned that at times we believe that God's conforming work in our lives is a little bit more like that American dream than it is to be like the one who died alone, a pauper, because the people around him couldn't handle the news that he preached. So this means that our priorities are different and they're often going to be opposed the priorities and the trappings of this world. When you're asking why, because you love God, things are hard for you, you're asking the wrong question. I'm asking the wrong question. We should be asking how through these hard things is God conforming me to the image of his son? Then we'll begin to see things a little bit more from his perspective. He's a big God. He will do it. He has promised to, and in his mind, he has already done it. These things are done. Let's pray. God, we thank you that these things are so sure. As we live in the already, but not yet, of you working them out, we pray, we hope that you will conform us more to the image of your son, through the renewing of our minds, and in all circumstances. Give myself and our church the strength to be in awe of you, to preach your word, knowing that you have many that you will call to faith. And God, may we long to be glorified in the new heaven and the new earth. Thank you for these great verses. 28 through 30. Wow. Wow. Thank you, God. It's in the name of Jesus, the son that we want to be like.
We pray. Amen. Our Savior Evangelical Free Church is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about what these words mean, visit our website at osefc.org.